Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. So, good morning, Christ Community Church. Ah, not too bad, not too bad. Um, so, I've got a lot to cover this morning. We're going to continue through Luke. We're in Luke uh, chapter 7. We're going to work through the entire chapter there. And what I, I hope that you'll see, uh, one of my goals in, in, in preaching what they call exegetically, that's verse by verse, through the Bible, is that you can see how chunks of the Bible fit together. It's not just, here's a story, here's a story, here's a story. But there's a point to having all those different stories together. Now, chapters and verses did not come along until after the invention of the printing press. So the early church did not have chapters and verses. But sometimes the people who inserted chapters and verses, I think they get it right in how they group things together. And I think they did a very good job here in Luke 7. So that's where we're going to go. If you want to open your Bible app, open your Bible. Luke 7 is where we're going. Before we get there, can we all agree on something about like the state of our culture, not just here in southern Ohio, northern Kentucky, but pretty much nationwide. We are all stressed out. Just everywhere I go, people are so stressed. For those of you who remember growing up in like the 80s, greatest decade ever, right? Uh, growing up in the 80s, you remember, we weren't that stressed out about that. In the 90s, we weren't that stressed out about it. It's just gotten worse and worse and worse. And so, you know, as a result, we've got industries booming left and right, you know, selling this form of meditation or, or these kind of breathing exercises or, or whatever. Um, I saw this morning when I was flipping through, one network is pushing a meditation app called uh, 10% Happier. I'm like, that seems like a low bar to me, you know, 10%, that's it. I'm like, you know, if I wake up in the morning and there's bacon and coffee and no lower back pain, well, I'm at like 13% happier right there, right? It just seems like a low bar. But what I think is, in, in, in his way, what Luke has done in Luke 7, he's going to talk about how we live our lives and how we should lead our lives. And I believe that if we follow the Word of God and how it says we should lead our lives, that we will be happier in the sense that we will be more peaceful. Make sense? All right, let's take a look at it. Luke 7, 1, let's go. So when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum was a lakeside town, and it was kind of one of his bases of operation. And there was a centurion's servant. Now, hold there. If you don't know what that means, a Roman centurion was a soldier in charge of 100 soldiers. That was a centurion. Now, in all likelihood, this centurion is neither Jewish nor Roman. Uh, he's probably from somewhere else because Rome considered uh, Israel to be kind of a backwater Right? They just, so they didn't send like their best soldiers there. They would send, they would basically hire people to be soldiers and be there. So that's probably who this guy is. Whom his master valued, he had a servant whom his master valued highly and was sick and about to die. Matthew says he was paralyzed. Now, it says servant, the word is doulos, which means slave. 
I always have to say this just so you don't know. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not the same as the slavery that infected America up until the Civil War. Not the same at all. It was not race-based at all. It also was basically, if you were a slave in the Roman Empire, you ended up that way out of one of three ways. Either one, you were part of a nation that Rome had conquered, and if they really had to whip up on you instead of you surrendering, they would often put a lot of people into slavery. That's one way. The second way was you were born that way. You were born a slave. If you were born, you know, if your parents were slaves, you, you know, you were likely born to be a slave. Three, a lot of people, a lot of people actually sold themselves into slavery. Because if they couldn't find a job and they couldn't beg for enough food, you could sell yourself, and if you sold yourself as a slave to a wealthy family, you were guaranteed three meals a day, a roof, clothing, and all that stuff for your family. All right, so you got to make sure that you get that right. Verse 3. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. In other words, this is not a setup. We've seen this before. Where the Jewish leaders go to Jesus. They're trying to set him up. They're trying to trap him. But Luke is pointing out now they're serious about this. He says, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So this is a guy who admired the Jewish faith and so much so that he took out some of his own money and Roman centurions were pretty well paid and he builds them basically a church building. So Jesus went with them He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, which was sizable, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. In other words, of my fellow Jews, I have not seen anybody who has faith like this. And what is his faith? What is he saying there? He's saying that he believes he has faith that Jesus Christ has authority over illness and death. You track that? Because he talks about, I know I'm a person of authority, you've got authority, so the kind of authority he's talking about is he recognizes Jesus has got this. Now, we haven't seen this before. You remember, when Jesus kicks out demons, what do the Jewish people do? They're like, how does he do that? That's amazing. When he heals people, they're they're amazed. And it wasn't that healing didn't take place or or that uh, fighting demon critters didn't take place. It did. But all the other people, they went through some kind of ritual and rigmarole and all this other kind of stuff that we talked about. Like when they exercised demons, you know, they'd take a stinky stick and stick it up their nose and all the other kind of stuff. Even in the Old Testament, when you see the prophets, um, the mighty prophets in the Old Testament... How do they heal somebody? How are they God's instrument to heal somebody? Like Elijah literally like lays on somebody, right? And, and they do all this stuff. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, be healed, be gone, and it's done. And the centurion says, I see it. You have authority. And I recognize that authority. And nobody else in Israel has got this yet. Nobody else. 
And then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Like I said, in Matthew it says he was paralyzed. In all likelihood, you got to remember, back then they didn't understand strokes. In all likelihood, the guy probably had a stroke. And Jesus heals him from a distance. He says, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. Now, keep him in mind. Keep this kind of faith in mind, because I'm going to circle back in about 40 verses, so don't get lost. We're going to come back here. Verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. Now, this is how, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a Jewish funeral or not. Some of the things they do in Jewish funerals today have been going on for thousands of years. There are certain traditions. Um, one ancient tradition, they don't do this anymore, but one ancient tradition was this. If, if someone died, they would bury him or her that day. They wouldn't wait because there are no, right, there's no embalming going on, all that kind of stuff. So they buried them that day. So if this young man passed away in the middle of the night or in the morning, they would have mourned all day, and then they would have carried him to a cave, and there they would have buried him in that cave, just as we're going to see with Jesus, right? Take him to a cave and put him in there. Now, the, even the disciples could have seen this as a widow with an only son, all right? Jesus knows this because he's God in the flesh, but even the disciples could have known this. How? Here's how. In a Jewish funeral, if you go, here's one of the traditions they sometimes have, especially Orthodox Jewish. Everyone there who's a mourner, if you've come to mourn with the family, they will rip their cloth on the right side over the heart. The immediate family will lift, will rip the left side right over the heart. And so Jesus is looking, this kid would have been carried not in a coffin, but like in a stretcher with a funeral shroud over him, a thin blanket. And this woman following behind, and she's the only one who has part of her clothing ripped on the left side. So even the disciples could see, oh, that's a widow, and that's either her husband or her son. And so a large crowd was with her because the people would all come together to mourn together. Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Now that sounds patently absurd, right? You walk up to a mother carrying his only son and say, don't cry. But it's Jesus. And why does he have such compassion on her? Other people are dying in Israel. What does he see? That draws the compassion and says, I've got to do something here. Okay, in ancient Israel, you need to understand that if you were a woman, they were not exactly hip with the Me Too movement. You didn't have a lot of rights as a woman in ancient Israel. You typically could not own property. Typically, you could only work under the supervision of your husband or your father. And so, if you have no husband and you have no son, the only thing left to a woman to do was beg or be a prostitute. That's it. And so Jesus sees this and he has compassion. 
on her because he knows what this means. It's not just that this young man has died and how horrible that is. He knows also that this woman is about to have no other choice but to turn to prostitution and because of that, she will be ostracized. She will be isolated. She will be called a sinful, unclean woman. And she'll no longer be able to go to the synagogue. She'll no longer be able to go to the temple. She'll no longer be able to come with her any uh, friends and, and, and for the holidays and celebrate. None of that. And Jesus has this concern over and over and over again. Why does he, for example, he cleanses a leper. He said, well, he cleansed a leper because it's a horrible skin disease. He had compassion. But more than that, what does he do? He says, now, go, go show yourself. Go show yourself to the elders. Why? What's he doing? He's saying, go show them you're clean. You can participate now. You can worship now. You can be with your family. You can, you can do this. See, one of the things you need to pick up on what, what Jesus is doing, one of his concerns is that they're not just be isolated believers here, but a community of believers who love each other and worship together, take care of one another. That's very important to him. There's no such thing as an isolated Christian to Jesus Christ. He did not just say, I have come to save individuals. What does he tell Peter? He says, I came to build a church. Verse 14. Then he went up and touched the, the buyer. That's the thing they were carrying him on. And the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, put yourself in this scene. How many of you would needed to have checked your drawers? All right, let's be honest. I, um, uh, when I was a freshman in college... One of my first jobs here was I worked in a funeral home. Now, working in a funeral home is not just standing at the door telling people where to sign, all other kind of stuff. Sometimes you have to deal with dead bodies. Now, and I think they did this on purpose. This wasn't you, William. I'm not picking on you. This was another funeral director. Here's what they don't tell a 19-year-old kid about bodies that have recently died. They move and they pass gas. I found that out the hard way. I may have screamed like a little girl. Maybe. But they move. But everyone freaks out. Everyone is freaking out here. So what is Jesus doing? He goes, he, when it says that he gave him back to his mother, everyone there is going, what just happened? He's the only one calm enough to go, come on, go home with your mom. That's what it means by he gave him back to his mother. Verse 16. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. They still don't get it right, do they? They don't look at Jesus and go, God is here. The Messiah is here. What do they say? Oh, he's a prophet. A, what is a prophet? A prophet, as I've told you before. A prophet is not somebody who goes into some kind of weird days and sees the future. That's not what the, how a Bible defines a prophet. A prophet is someone who has been commissioned by God to speak to his people. That's a prophet. Okay? And that's who they think Jesus is. But he, we know he is more than that. Verse 17 and this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Okay, now, 
you have these two miracles happen, and then, like again, I want you to learn how this flow works. Now we're going to get a story in which a prophet, someone who is a prophet, has great doubt. And that's John the Baptist. 718, let's go. John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them. And he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, isn't John the Baptist the one who proclaimed all of Israel, this is the one? And now he's sending his disciples to Jesus going, wait a minute, are you the one or not? Why is John asking this? He's rotting in prison. He's desperate. So he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the Bible repeats itself, pay attention. Luke is hammering this home for a reason. He wants you to note this. It's something important. 21. At that very time, and so why they're asking this, Jesus turns and does this. He cured many who had diseases, sickness, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. But blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Okay, here's what Jesus is doing there. He is quoting messianic prophecies from Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 42, and Isaiah 61. Four different places in Isaiah where it says the poor will receive good news. The sick will be healed. The dead will be raised. But there's one line in that prophecy there Jesus does not quote. Do you know what that line is? The prisoner will be freed. What's the message he's sending to his cousin John the Baptist, you won't be freed. Your time's at an end. Now, he's going to go on to praise John, but I want you to see this. I want you to understand this. It's not John's doubts that he's having. Any one of you who are rotting in a prison where where some little tin-panny dictator wanted to cut your head off, you'd probably be a little desperate too. You'd probably have a few doubts running through your mind, wouldn't you? It's not that he's doubting that, that Jesus says you won't be freed. John's duty to the kingdom of God has ended. He's done his job, and it's done. And I know that sounds harsh, so we're going to talk more about it After this, see what Jesus has to say about John once he sent the messengers back. 724. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. He said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? In other words, a weakling? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, 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 no. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. He's talking about the Pharisees. What did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, but I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one to whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. 
I tell you, among those born of women, or it really could say naturally born, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who was least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this, and this is a tough, tough, tough teaching. And I will just be honest with you, I don't like it myself. Jesus is saying John the Baptist was the greatest prophet who ever lived for the Old Covenant. But that is going away. A new covenant is arising. John's service is over. Now, the good news, bad news thing about that is this. God does not look at you and say, okay, you get 84 years, you get 90 years, you get 101, you get 73, you get... Consistently through Scripture, even with the prophets, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, or John the Baptist, what does God do? Your time on this planet is determined by God's purpose for you in his creation. Now, the good news, bad news thing about that is this. Still with the bad news first. We don't know when we've served that purpose and when our time is at an end. I don't know when mine is. You don't know when yours is. Have no idea. But if you're a Christian, that means you're a servant of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not have an earthly retirement plan. You don't get to go, you know what, from age 22 when I got out of college to 65 when I retired from my work. I led Bible studies. I invited people to church. I did all that. Time to relax. Nope, doesn't work that way. We're to serve God right up until we meet God for judgment. That's what we're supposed to do. There's no earthly retirement plan. But when it's done, it's done. John the Baptist has served his purpose. Here's the good news. If you're alive you're a Christian, you've got something left to do. There's a reason why you're here. I can't tell you what that reason is. That's the question I get asked most as a pastor. I've been doing this now for almost 22 years, and it is the number one question. What do you think God's will for my life is? I don't know. I'm not God. I'm still trying to figure out what he wants me to do. I have plans. I've learned the hard way that he could care less. So you don't know. But if you're here, you're breathing, you're above ground, you're walking around, you're calling yourself a Christian, there is something else God wants you to do at some point. I don't know what it is, but you are here for a reason. And I know that's good news, bad news, because you get it done, and you're like, bye-bye.
But you know why we see that as bad news? And I get it, because I struggle with this too. The simple fact is too many of us don't, we don't want to go to hell, but we don't necessarily want to go to heaven. We want to be comfortable here. And despite the fact that the being who created here says, here stinks compared to what I got waiting for you, for some reason we want to stay here. So you can look at what Jesus is saying that, no, John the Baptist's time has come to an end. He's not getting out of prison. He is going to die. The flip side of that is he doesn't have to go back in the wilderness and chew on bugs. He gets to go to heaven and be with God. You see that? You need to see that. Because this next section, we'll see how easy it is to fall into something else. 731. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? He's getting ready to take another shot at the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders who have rejected him. This is what scholars call the parable of the brats. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge or a funeral song and you did not cry. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the Jewish leaders are trying to play by their own rules. They're saying it should be this way. When God is saying, no, and they're not listening. Thank goodness God's people got over that. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you said, he has a demon. Then the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, in your eyes, you can't win for losing. But wisdom is proved right by her children. In other words, how this all comes out, when it all comes out in the wash, we'll see who's right. That's what he's saying. It's real easy, even in suffering, to get self-righteous and miss the purpose of God. Look, even if you, God forbid, I don't wish it on anyone, myself, you, anyone. If you get horrible stage four cancer and you're in that hospital fighting for your life, and, and you've got a medical team, and you're just, we're spending just tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to give you more life. That little life you have has a reason for it. And we're too often, myself included, go, woe is me when we've got kingdom work to do. I've seen it. I've seen it too many times where people on their deathbed have brought more people to Christ on their deathbed than they ever did when they were living. to have purpose, but only if you're not like these brats who want to set the rules of the game themselves. Doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. But this is how it should work. And this is the last example Luke has for you, and he's going to smack us upside the face with it. 736. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, the way people reclined at a table in ancient Israel and in most of the Roman Empire was this. They usually would have a table kind of Asian style on the floor. 
and then they would have pillows or cushions around it, and you would lie either on your side or like this, like on your elbows, and your feet would be pointed away from the table, and there's reasons for that. It smelled. But a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, now what does that mean? A woman who's lived a sinful life. We've already seen it. Why did he heal the widows? Why did he heal the boy? She's a prostitute. A woman in town who'd lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. This was probably a family heirloom. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. So she is just, she is not just crying. This is not like my wife when she sees that Google commercial where the guy's showing me my wife's favorite movie and all kind of stuff, and she cries every single time. No, it's not like that. This is bawling. Absolutely bawling. And I, I, the weird thing is, the most I've ever seen women cry in my life, like uncontrollably, was when my girlfriend at the time dragged me to see Titanic. Hate that movie with the heat of a thousand suns. Three and a half hour lifetime movie with some good special effects. That's it. It stinks. And women everywhere in that theater just bawling uncontrollably for 90 pound Leonardo DiCaprio. Not even, not even, what's her name? Cried that much. She just dunked him. See ya. I'm going to live life. But man, every woman in there just pouring tears. And that's what's going on here. She is standing over Jesus' feet. Dirty, dusty, smelly feet. And she is just weeping. Buckets. And then she wiped them with her hair, which was considered humiliating for a woman to do. For a woman to let her hair down in Israel and then to wipe feet. This is, this is humiliation. She's humiliating herself in front of a crowd of respected people, and she doesn't care. And she kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, it's a Pharisee's name. I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One of them owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, which is how they greet. They still do in the Middle East. You see, they kiss one cheek, that kind of thing. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, which was hospitality. This is dry. But she has poured perfume on my feet. 
Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Ever met that person? Ever met that self-righteous person who believes that they haven't really sinned that much? Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay, these are not just one story, then another story, then another story, then another story. They are three connected stories sandwiched around John the Baptist's doubt. Now, I want you to see this. What Luke is doing here is important. What he is saying is, you can be like the Pharisees and try to set your own rules and live in opposition to God regardless of how godly you think you are. You can do that. You can and will have doubts at the end of your life about who Jesus is. That will happen. It will happen. It's happened to me. When I went through my ordeal with an open hole in my back and I went through all that, I found out how self-righteous I really was and it was disturbing. Because what happens? What happens when some tragedy comes into your life? What happens when something happens to you? Sickness. Someone betrays you. You're going to tell me it never goes through your head to be like, Lord, but I'm a good person. Why aren't you helping me out? That's self-righteousness. We all do it. What do we do when we get in those situations? This is not fair. What you got to understand is what the Bible says is, <laughs> you don't want fair. None of us want fair. Fair is every single one of us spend an eternity in hell for the sins we've committed against a holy God. That's fair. What we get is grace and mercy. And because God gets to decide who, what, when, and how much, we should be grateful for what we get. And I know that's easier said than done. I know that's easier said than done. But... <coughs> It's the way it is. And all this stuff in our culture today, how can we be calmer? How can we be happier? How can we be... I just tell you this. I'm certainly not against prayerful meditation. I'm for it. But a lot of the stuff I see out there, I think in the long run, is counterproductive. And part of it is I've already seen where this goes. 
because no shot against our hometown, which I love, but we're a little behind the curve, right? The stuff that you're seeing now with this is how you get happier, this is how you get more peaceful, this stuff has filtered down from Los Angeles over the last 20, 30 years. I saw it when I lived there. And here's what I found. The people generally are somewhat more peaceful, but they're also much more self-focused and narcissistic. Because when it's all about looking into yourself, then it's all about yourself. And if we are sinful beings alienated from God, what are you looking for in there anyway? My own prejudice is there's nothing in there to find. It's not there. Where you need to look is to the Word of God and especially to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where you need to look. If you want to have a more peaceful life, you'll wrestle. You will wrestle with things. I used to get in arguments with Buddhists about this all the time. I remember a Buddhist told me once, that if he lost his child, he'd just, quote, get over it, because that's good Buddhist teaching. No thank you. I don't want to become less feeling. I do not want to distance myself from that, and I don't want to look inside myself for anything. I need to learn to have the faith of a centurion and the humility of a sinful woman. Luke is saying even the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant didn't get it like a Roman centurion and a prostitute. They got it. I don't need more meditation. I need more of the Spirit in my life. I want to be more peaceful. I want to be happier. I get stressed out too. I'm, I'm really glad, honestly, even though I joke about it, the only frustration I have to put up with is New Boston. That's it. I used to have to deal with airports, which is the New Boston of, of international travel. I want to be more peaceful, too. I want to be calmer, too. I want to be happier. Who wouldn't? But the hard teaching of Scripture is this. The only way to get there is to come to Jesus Christ with, and be willing to humiliate yourself. Because it's not about you. This prostitute humiliated herself and basically put herself out of business and gave away probably the only family heirloom and piece of wealth she had to Jesus Christ. And what she received was what? You're forgiven. Go in peace. That's what I want. Isn't that what you want? But you don't get to go to God and dictate how that happens. He dictates how it happens. And that's how we have to live our lives. I don't know what your purpose is 
I don't know. I don't know how long you're going to be on this earth. I don't know. I don't know. Jesus may return, you know, this afternoon. I don't think so because I still think that if I had to bet, I don't bet because I'm bad at it, but if I had to bet, and I may have sinfully prayed for this, I think it's when the Browns are in the Super Bowl And they're down six with 15 seconds to go, and they're at the goal line, getting ready to push in a winning touchdown to win the Super Bowl, and at that moment, I think Jesus returns. I think that's how it's going to happen. But I don't know. That's what I want, but I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know what your specific purpose is. I know what your big purpose is, is to worship God and love each other. That's, that's for everyone. But I know this. Whatever your purpose is, you're going to fulfill it better if you approach Christ with the humility that this woman did. With the faith of a centurion. I think that's what it's all about. The few people I've met who who are like that are the happiest people I've ever met, ironically. Because if you want to have a truly wonderful life, what does Jesus say? You have to lose it. And that's what it's all about. Amen? All right, I'm done. Let's pray and get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you inspired Luke to write these words so that we could see the very hard truth that our lives are not our own. We're here to serve you for a certain amount of time. And that our gift of salvation is more than we deserve and our only proper response to that is to humiliate ourselves before you to show you as much love as we possibly can muster. That we come together as a church and care for each other, love each other, carry each other's burdens, pray for each other, worship with each other. That's what life is all about. It's not about being 10% happier It's about all your people being 100% devoted to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.